0: Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world to hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gears, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockton Cyclery for supporting bike pack adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks, and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring, get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, and learn the pros and cons of certain gear, bikes, and bike setups. I hope you enjoy this podcast and that my guest stories fill your journeys with hours of listening. If you're new to the bike touring scene and considering going on a tour, I hope this podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. In the meantime, enjoy the show. In episode 42 of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the chance to speak with Belen Castello and Tristan Bogart. After something like three years on the road, Belen and Tristan were forced to stop, as so many of you were. Instead of just waiting for everything to get back to normal, they devoted their time to putting the finishing touches on their coffee table book titled Bike Life. I've had the pleasure of being able to read through the book, and it accomplishes something that so many novels fail to do. With beautiful pictures to accentuate very descriptive text, the book makes you want to drop everything, jump on a bike. So, without any further ado, Valen, Tristan, welcome to Bike Tour Adventures.
1: Hi. Nice to
2: meet you.
0: You too. You too. So before we start talking about the book, because I think, you know, usually I talk about people's bike tours and you guys had, had a long tour. Um, I just thought we'd kind of go through the, the places you talk about in the book, because I think that's what, that's what you really wanted to share. And that's what you felt to be the most, uh, the most wondrous part of your journey. So, uh, before we jump into that, why don't we get to know you guys? Could you tell us about yourselves?
3: So should I start? me? <laughs> yeah, you, you can start. <laughs> okay. Well. Yeah, I guess the the whole thing started with me. I was in a, in a position in the Netherlands where I was exploring what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, it wasn't very clear for me. Eventually, I ended up cycling across the United States from New York to LA in 2014 in about two months mm-hmm. with a big backpack and a very crappy old bike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that I eventually made it on. And I, as I returned to Europe, the trip had been very experimental, uh, but I'd learned a lot through it, and it gave me some kind of purpose. So I thought that I should repeat in, in Europe, closer to home, uh, be in a more safe area, and really get to know my continent. And I took a camera with me to give more purpose to the journey, because okay. I knew that I could make something out of it if I would put the work into it. And well, just before I started that European journey in uh, April of 2015, I met Belen, who was then working in Amsterdam as an architect. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we, we met. Uh, we, well, I really liked her. She was uh, occupied with other things, yeah. but I, <laughs> I was ready to drop the whole journey plan and just stay there and get into a relationship with her. But it's good that she, she politely refused. Uh, I, I went on on the journey, and we connected throughout the journey on, uh, on WhatsApp, and then we started skyping. And eventually, when I made it to Spain, because my plan was to go from Netherlands to Portugal to Italy, and then up to Norway. Okay. When I made it to Spain, she uh, gave me some advice, and we really started talking. And then just the relationship kind of grew through uh, through a long distance uh, uh, digital form. First, and then we eventually started dating and started a relationship. And well, maybe, but then you can tune in now with with your side of the story, so that it links up. Yeah.
2: Well, like he said, I was working as an architect, and while he was cycling through Europe, I was already in London. So eventually, I knew that I I wanted to take a year off work and I wanted to travel, but I never considered the bicycle as a possibility until I met him. So. It took a bit of convincing through his side because I never really cycled before. I definitely had never camped in my life. So uh, I trusted him. So eventually uh, it took me one year to, you know, prepare, quit my job, uh, leave my apartment. And um, even though I did want to go to the other side of the world with a bicycle, Tristan convinced me that Europe was the best option because I had never ridden before. And it was a bit of a test. So if something went wrong, we were actually close to home. And this is how, in June two thousand seventeen, I joined him on a bicycle, and our first country together was Norway, which is also the first country we feature in the book, which is bike life.
0: Okay, yeah. so I actually, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I wasn't sure exactly when you started, so mid mid two thousand seventeen. So it was about two and a half or so years total. Huh? Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I Norway... mean, it hasn't
2: been nonstop. Mm-hmm. We, we've done it in in, in in episodes with have uh, yeah the longest we've been I think we've been on the road for is nine months without stopping more yeah. or less yeah
0: and what do yeah, you guys in start do in between these uh, in these stops like what, do you pick up where you left off do some freelance architecture or is it just more of a time to <laughs> chill with family and
2: no I'm afraid freelance architecture is not really a thing <laughs> like it's very location dependent because you know buildings are location dependent mm-hmm. so for now, architecture is on pause. Everybody um, needs
0: buildings. So. Yeah.
2: I, I still find myself sometimes, sometimes on Pinterest, you know, like pinning cute buildings or something, some interiors. But no, it's it's not a priority right now. And right now, what we do is we focus mostly on, on producing online content, photography, videography, uh, even writing and e- even this book. So all our energy is going to cycling and trying to get more people on bikes and actually sharing our story to inspire hmm. everyone out there.
3: That, that was also the goal when we started because convincing Belen to join me didn't just take a, a nice and safe location that had great landscapes to offer uh, and, and she promised kind of a, 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 a safe journey for her. It was also the fact that if she were to join and drop all these things, which was a pretty promising career in architecture in London uh, and perhaps worldwide, i would have to make this thing very official and and she would uh, help in that so we would become a team both in our relationship and also on the work side of things Mm -hmm. and really try to make it a professional thing and in the beginning we didn't have a book in mind that uh, sort of came in through throughout the way Uh, actually near the the last journey we did in 2019 but, yeah, that was the, the main goal of her joining in, uh, in Norway for the first time, that we would make a serious thing out of it and really try to capture whatever we could and put it in places so that it could grow naturally. Ah, oh, very cool. That has continued uh, yeah, throughout the year. And Norway, just to add something to the choice of the country, we chose it because of the fact that you could camp there, wild camp. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I always mention this. Just in case other couples are listening and it's perhaps difficult to convince each other on joining because of distance or no difference yeah. or yeah <laughs> well the, the 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 main thing about this wild camping is that the partner who is most in need of doing a little distance or catching up on speed or just getting into it for the first time can decide when to stop because mm-hmm. there is always an option to wild camp. That's you right. don't have to make it another forty kilometers to the next camp spot or you know, to the hotel or or Airbnb or whatever, you can decide on the spot, okay, we're going to look now and find something within you know, the first half hour. And that was um, really crucial for Norway.
2: Yeah. And also being Norway, you know, that wherever you put your tent is going to be a beautiful stop. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you guys, um, just to clarify, where are you guys from? Who's from where? I feel like Tristan, I'm, I feel like you're from everyone, Norway, but no, it's probably wrong. <laughs> everyone
2: <laughs> thinks he's from Norway. I don't know why. Yeah.
0: It's my accent, maybe. maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I don't
2: know. Yeah. I'm,
3: I'm from, from Netherlands, so it does start with an N.
2: Yeah, and I'm from Spain, so yeah, Spain. from the East Coast, Valencia, yeah. The The reason we met is just because as soon as I finished architecture school, I just uh, emigrated to the Netherlands for mm-hmm. my first job. So that's where we crossed paths.
0: Okay. And Tristan, you had some... Before your cycle across America, had you grown up riding a lot? Had you done other bike tours, or was this kind of like a... I'm going to do this and go for it.
3: Yeah, well, it, it requires a bit of explanation, this this question. It's quite a complicated story. I'll try to keep it simple. Basically, well, when you grow up in the Netherlands, everybody, I likes. think everyone knows by now, yeah, everyone cycles here. You you grow up with two wheels under yourself, and, and you always consider cycling for school, groceries, uh, getting to the cinema, whatever you do, there's always a bicycle in the picture. And so I I grew up with that sense of commuting in mind. Um, But I had also never really linked the bicycle to going to other countries. Somehow it was all within my own province. And I did do one little bike tour when I was 12 years old uh, around the IJsselmeer, which is this big lake that we have in the Netherlands. I did it with a friend. I remember very vaguely a few campsites that we went to and um, I borrowed the bike of his father with some bags. So it was very uh, low key, but I enjoyed that journey very much. Then about, I think, eight years passed, if I'm correct, and, and this America journey came up simply because, like I said before, I was in a place where I needed to define something for myself to kind of. Prove myself, my opportunities, my my possibilities. My, look for my limits to myself, and uh, I followed these guys on YouTube that did a, a rickshaw ride across northern India, three thousand kilometers for a, a cancer charity in the UK. And I was so baffled by their material that I, I got really inspired, and I, I thought I should do the same because this, you know, it will give me a lot of purpose and the journey. It will obviously be very beautiful. I'll see Los Angeles, which was a a dream of mine for a long time. So I went into it quite um, with with little experience. And like I said, I I bought this bike on Amazon uh, for $200. Uh, I took a backpack with me because I was very stubborn and I wanted to carry everything on the backpack, nothing on the bike. I learned my lesson on the way, but <laughs> <I> yeah,
0: <imagine. laughs>
3: it was summer, you know, it was super hot. I hadn't calculated the heat. Uh, I was afraid of camping, so I tried to stay with uh, a lot of people through warm showers and other places where I would say that I was doing this for a charity and people would usually help me. And so I did end up um, uh, collecting a bit of money for the charity, which was great. And the journey taught me all those lessons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the way that I came to the start of it was just because I, I wanted to uh, add purpose to my life to, to see if this would be something that I could carry on doing.
0: Okay. And Belen is an architect. what did you do prior to cycling cycling life?
2: Uh, yeah, well, I mean when, when you're born in Spain, cycling is just what you do for sports. Okay. there's not such thing as human commuting even though it's insane because the weather here is just perfect the cities are generally flat or they're 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 just perfect weather it's just that uh, there's no culture for that so my only bis- bicycle experience was in around the year 2010 where i went to do the famous pilgrimage here called camino de santiago mm-hmm, which goes yeah. all the way to the north to santiago my brother convinced me to do it with his with with our parents with my dad and I borrowed a cheap bike. We bought this very cheap everything and we went there for 10 days. That's cool. And I think, well, now it's very, um, you know, fancy to say that you hike a bike, but we were doing that already in 2010 for this thing. And I remember after finishing, I told my myself that I would never sit on a bicycle again because it was so painful, so horrible. Never right? we say so never. Huh? Yeah. And then, yeah, basically, uh, I kept my word for a few days until I eventually moved to the Netherlands for, oh, for yeah. my first job. And that's when I was like, Oh, look at this. And we have a, a good bike as a nice bike she got the home experience.
0: Those Dutch bikes yeah. are pretty yeah, comfortable. That... Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. 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 It's almost like sitting on a couch. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just kept on commuting for two years and a half while I was working for different offices. And eventually, I got my first rain bike when I joined Tristan. That's
0: okay.
2: that's how things slowly scaled up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I rode my first Dutch bike this summer in uh in the Yukon of Canada. So this um this family I stayed with they had done a teaching gig in uh, the Netherlands, and they brought back with them a Volkswagen camper van and three Dutch bikes. Pr- pretty <laughs> nice. It was wow. fun. It was a good little ride around town. Yeah. yeah. Those I mean are the, ones the second.
3: Without, uh without the bar in the top right that's they, right they yeah,
0: yeah. and out. then they got the <laughs> basket the second-hand and...
2: market there is is incredible like you can find bikes that are 50 year, years old and they're so beautiful and so welcomed and probably they have gone already through 15 different owners oh, wow. but they never die yeah. they're so strong it's,
3: it's actually it's how i got the bike for the european journey because when i came back my 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 bike that i rode in america was destroyed and uh I rode through Arizona one day with six broken spokes, so it was destroyed. But anyway, uh, the bike that I got here in the Netherlands, it was three hundred fifty euros, and this guy had kept it for traveling. He had put these uh, tubus uh, racks on the on the rear nice. and the and the front, so it was like a perfectly prepared bike, but for a fraction of the the price that you would pay for it okay. in the store. All because of uh, we call it Markplatz, It's this secondhand market thing that is kind of growing around uh, around the world. This the secondhand market. It's a great way to get your your first bike.
0: Cool. Let's talk about bikes. Um, so you're sponsored by Specialized. Was did this come around prior to the tour with when balance started with you, or was this something that came about naturally later on?
3: No, it was actually the the bike that I ended up buying on the. On the on marked paths, okay. it was a specialized cross trail, mm-hmm. and I I rode it through Europe, did my thing, never contacted them, and then when Belen was supposed to go and join me, I thought, okay, well, then I should try and get her a bike, and since I'd already ridden the the specialized bike through Europe, uh, it seemed like the most logical pick. Mm-hmm. So I contacted the the Dutch office here; they have a, a European office in the Netherlands, and uh, surprisingly one of the guys there got back to me Leon is his name and he uh he said yeah sure we we can talk so I went there in a little bit of a novice fashion but I managed to convince them about the project and about the fact that we were going together and so they got us the two sequoia bikes that we still uh, still ride nowadays that have gone out of the collection unfortunately but they're great bikes uh yeah and, and they've They've always just kindly sponsored us with uh, with anything we would need in terms of repairs or servicing on the bikes. So it's been a fairly flexible gentleman's agreement, so to say.
0: Okay. And do you have any special, um, I don't know, um, is there any particular setup on the bike with regards to gears or, you know, I know some people have belt drive, roll-off hubs, things like that. Uh...
3: <laughs> well, B, I think you can, you can say something well... about your gears.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's uh, an evolving situation because the more you ride, the more you understand what you want and what you need. So uh, for me right now, something is clear and that's a flat bar because we were cycling with drop bars for, for quite a long time. And the, I don't know, the more off road you go, the more unstable I feel on them. Um, so for me, a flat bar uh, with more stability is a, is a, is a plus. Um, yeah, what about you, Tristan?
3: <laughs> well, I, I've always really liked the one by dry, uh, drive train mm-hmm. so 11 or 12 in the back, and just one chainring in the front. Uh, Belen started on her Sequoia with the, the front derailleur as well, and we noticed that that was really prone to breaking down, yeah. So, uh, I was very happy with the, the one by, and I, I think I would recommend it to pretty much everyone just to go for something like a 32-teeth uh, uh, one-by drive chain in the front to make sure that you can still climb mountains. And if not, you just push mm-hmm. like we did on our most recent journey. Uh, but yeah, Berlin has switched to a Diverge um, Evo. It's it's an, a new bike that they make,
0: and it it's has something. this flat
3: bar. So it's like a kind of merge between a gravel and a mountain bike. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm very interested about it. It has this
2: internal suspension. So you really feel the difference when you're a road. I never realized how much of an importance the suspension was until mm-hmm. I actually got it. Because suddenly that, is your wrists stopped this, hurting. It's built
0: into the stem or something. Or?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's built in exactly. So attaching bags is no problem at all.
0: Mm-hmm. For example, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's great. And the other thing we're actually very happy with right now are using pedals that are cleats on one side and just normal flat pedals on the other side. Because for a while we were not using cleats. And then we moved into cleats um, and it really helped, especially with knee pain. We were cycling in the Canary islands where we were basically just or climbing or descending. So the cleats helped a lot there, but then when you're off road, you don't want to always be clipped in. Because we had a few situations, you know. <laughs> yeah, I
0: find once you start that. using cleats, you it's hard to go back. Like, um, yeah. It's hard to go back, yeah. I, I, what I like is that your feet are stable, of... so you're not, like, you know, yeah. your feet are fine. Your knees are okay, but, like, if you move your foot on a flat pedal, that's when the pain starts because you're not in a good position. So it's hard to keep it always yeah. in one spot. For me, I'm, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a clip-in kind of person, so, yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah, no, I think you're right on. You're right on. But these, the pedals, they do offer... The, the flat pedal, just in case you might need it sometimes. Is
0: that the Shimano it's ones or, very, or a different brand?
3: Yeah, Shimano, just yeah. The, the regular, mm-hmm. the, the base model they have.
0: Yeah, I use them on um, my bike. Yeah, they're,
3: they're super handy. And also the fact that now I think more people, more uh, companies start to tune into it with the fact that they have pretty casually looking shoes and sandals mm-hmm. with cleats installed so that you can use them for walking, for hiking, and still use them on the bike.
0: Yeah, good point. Um, so, what kind of bike setup do you have? I know that um, that they've changed a bit over the years um, from what uh, Belen had originally to what she has on her Evo now. Um, how did you guys tell us about your setup? Panniers versus bike yeah. packing, or
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we started with bicycle touring because that was the starting point back then, especially for someone that has never ridden before and someone that doesn't, doesn't yet know what to carry or has optimized their gear, you know, to do bikepacking, I think it takes a bit of a process to understand what you actually need to take with you and to eventually also purchase the lightest, uh, gear possible. Mm-hmm. So light, <clears throat> light usually also comes with big costs. Yeah. So for us, it started like that. We we started with bicycle touring and we were going to go for a long time for different seasons. So we had to carry quite a lot of things with us. And the same with um, with production gear. We Because we film our trips, we document everything. We carry so many electronics, as in we carry our own laptops. Tristan carries his, I carry mine, all the chargers. We carry drones, cameras, lenses, sometimes microphones, hard drives. So... Um, for us, it's been a very difficult transition to lose weight on the bike. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think we can uh, call ourselves bike packers because we we still depend on on the rack a little bit so that we can carry our gear. If we would eventually ditch all the stuff, we would f- be for sure doing pure backpacking but now we're calling it some kind of a fusion as in we're not bike touring or we're not backpacking it's some kind of a mix
0: yeah i like that fusion hybr- hybrid <laughs> yeah. hybrid setup or fusion yeah. fusion yeah. sounds fusion. nice it's like yeah it's good sound
3: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and and in in bike life we we do only show the bike with panniers so the the bicycle touring approach and i think yeah, the the goal behind bike life to get more people on bicycles, traveling around, uh, bike touring fits that image because it's the easier way to do it. I would say bikepacking is for the, the the person that is already fallen in Mm -hmm. love with traveling by bicycle and wants to do it lighter is prepared to spend a bit more money on it, uh, because that's just the way it goes with bikepacking.
2: And, and sacrifice some comforts, of course, like it doesn't come without sacrifices.
3: That's right. Yeah. So the bike touring setup is, is the main uh, uh, thing in, in bike life. And yeah, it's, it's a great way to start out. You can take whatever you think is necessary. Of course, after two weeks, two weeks, you'll end up sending a box back home with some things you, you haven't used.
0: <laughs> and you should, I, uh, I, I I always say that, like, don't, don't just carry it because you're like, oh, well, right. shipping is a pain in the ass. It's like, no, just send it, you know, you're...
3: Shipping's easy. If, yes. you, if
0: you don't use it and you're not, you don't see yourself like, if, yeah, if you're carrying a winter sleeping bag and you know you're going into the Alps and it's going to be November, maybe it's a good idea to keep it. But otherwise, get rid of it, you know, or
1: yeah. four season
0: tents, you know, if you're going to be in a, in Africa, you don't need a four season tent. Right.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right now, I'm preparing for a journey in Italy.
3: I'm going on a, on a one-month trip uh, on the Apennine mountain chain. Okay. And I'm looking at my setup. I haven't actually put the rack on my bike, but uh, since the Sequoia still fits the rear rack, I'm thinking of putting that on and going for that fusion that we mm. were talking about. Mm-hmm. Right now, uh, Ortlieb has brought out these little fork bags that you can attach to any fork theoretically. So okay. even a suspension fork could fit those baggies. Oh, cool. Because they deliver some kind of metal strip with a bit of rubber around it. it yeah, creates a kind of screw hole, uh, separate from the the
0: the fork. And you can still attach the, the baggies. To okay, them. so it's kind of, it's kind a of like, like um, screw holes. yeah, it's a, like, so, like using it's a, a salsa pannier. anything cage, but you would have actually like an Ortley bag that's a little bigger, probably. And
3: yeah, it's, yeah. it's like a mini pannier. You you have the smaller ones. They they have the big ones and then the small ones and then these are like all for two thirds of that size. Mm-hmm. So it's enough to fit, for example, a whole drone setup or your clothes if you're minimal on clothes, uh, or some extra food mm-hmm. or your your cooking setup. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking of putting those in the front and then putting the the, the handlebar bag, uh, including the pouch, uh, the stem baggies, yeah. and then. Rear rack with uh, the two smaller panniers. Okay, but yeah, that fusion gives a lot of space, especially if you've already lost a bit of weight in your in your um, in your package in, in what, what you take with you, uh, and it's not as heavy as a full bike touring setup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so, this, this summer we, I did a bike packing style setup, and the you know the only thing I didn't love about it was the seat post bag because. To get yeah. my to get my so, tent yeah. out, I had to dump the whole bag out because everything was kind of crammed in there and I was just like ripping yeah. my hair out every time. That's why I'm starting to go ball. It's um it was just driving me nuts.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's still space for developing that bag in the market. Yeah. The the other thing that we experienced is that uh, well Tristan was carrying this the this saddle bag, and when you were descending steep you go down the mountain as in all the weight is on the front if you're carrying most of it on the front. Mm-hmm. So it's not very stable in, in that in that sense. So yeah. I really think that the saddle bag is more for light trips, like weekend yeah. or week adventures where you're not carrying all your gear. Yeah,
0: I see I <laughs> see people um more gravitating towards um a lightweight frame rack on the back and then a rack top mm-hmm. bag that's not too yeah. big, but it's yeah. it makes things accessible. And that seems like to be the next logical step for me. So just have to convince my wife to let me spend more money. <laughs> things uh, I'd like to ask what are some of the things that you would, that you packed in your bags that would be considered most unusual? Most unusual.
2: Hmm. Mm. I mean, I guess it's usual for us. That's why we pack it. But I wonder if some people would find it strange though.
0: Well, well in, I, in my I... case.
2: <laughs>
3: I just thought of something. Maybe we're I, gonna I, say the same thing. Maybe we're gonna say, say the same thing. It. But I'm 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 just gonna say it because this is this is a quite a good thing to talk about in terms of Belen being a walking pharmacy.
2: I was gonna say something. She, <laughs>
3: she has a bag. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. She has a bag full of, you know, whatever you need, whatever situation you'll be in, yeah. she has something to fix you. It is
2: it is so optimized. I Eventually, I started doing this mostly for a Central Asia trip because, you know, you can get sick there and then there's nothing you can do. So I developed some kind of a system with very small Ziploc bags where I would carry pills. for I would have pills for everything, for height sickness, mm-hmm. for uh, puking, for diarrhea, for whatever. And I did little little notes where I would say how to take it, when to take it, when it was expiring. So, whenever what it I was
3: yeah. with little yeah, drawings, so that if Belen would be passed out on the side of the road, I could go into her bag and still it.
0: understand yeah. what I would yeah, have to yeah. give her.
2: And hey, it was useful. I mean, we used quite a few yeah. of so, them. Yeah.
0: And did they get um, yeah. Did it get slimmed down and optimized as you went? Like, were you like, okay, this thing's something that we're never going to need? Or like, I was a well, little yeah, bit when, pa- when par- when paranoid when we're at the start? <laughs>
2: When we cycled in places where there were access to pharmacies, then we—I I was only carrying like the, the very basics. Okay. But uh, when we go remote, then that's when I carry everything. Also, for myself, I am a diabetic type one, so I—I kind of have to be careful with that. So I have to carry insulin with me and mm-hmm. needles and and all this just in case things. Uh, but yeah, I guess not everyone carries. This amount of just in case okay. stuff with that, them.
0: That was an unusual amount of a first aid kit, but yeah, cool. Uh, what else? <laughs> Anything else that stands out? I
3: I would say that in in terms of uh, of um, technical gear, just the, how obsessed we are with recording everything and taking photos of everything, it brings along quite a bit of unusual stuff as well, like you know, an, an audio recorder is uh, specifically used when you're talking far away from the camera that's a thing that we've just added yeah and i had never
0: so like, that's like a wireless a four. wireless recorder
3: yeah so it's it's the one that i showed okay, earlier yeah. and it has a little uh microphone that you tag uh, put on your shirt and then mm-hmm. you can talk to to it and then record right, separately right. and put it over your camera over your video file mm-hmm. uh so with that we do go quite into detail you know nd filters and Uh, stuff like that that the regular person really won't care Mm -hmm. about. They'll just take their phone. Phones are really good nowadays, so you can record whatever and take pictures very easily. But I would say that we are quite focused and quite uh, into this niche of video and photography. Go ahead. And
2: I just thought about another one for a while. Before I eventually got an e-reader, we were actually carrying books with us so we would carry usually two, as in when I was reading one, Tristan was reading the other one, and then we would swap. And then we would maybe change it with someone on the road. So for a while, we were actually carrying books with us, like mm. books. Yes. Yeah. Now the you know e-readers are a fantastic thing for traveling.
0: There, there's something nice about books, but yeah, I think when you're going to bike, an e-reader is such a good thing to have. Yeah.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: awesome.
3: And uh, what are your what are your thoughts on instant coffee?
0: I'm not a huge fan. I've, I've had some decent ones. And in Asia, you can get these, um, you get these coffee bags. I don't know if you guys have them in Europe, but I, I tell my dad about them because he sales and he's like, man, I wish I had like a way to, to just, I'm like, in Asia, you just buy coffee bags. You buy a bag of 50 of them and you just throw them in your coffee, add water. They're so good. It's like real coffee. And, um, and you can make them. I mean, I tell my dad, I'm like, just, take you know coffee filters put some coffee in them take dental floss and tie them shut you know but i I prefer to make a home brewed coffee but when i have to we've
3: been been switching on that front. we had a little coffee maker for a while and then now we've gone into these little baggies of instant Mm -hmm. coffee i would say that it's unusual because whoever you talk with about instant coffee they always say no 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 not for me
0: and you guys can no see me right it. now like yeah. i might look like the most stereotypical north american with this massive freaking coffee <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: um yeah. i didn't I, I like i usually drink two to two and a half coffees in the morning and i was next morning i was like well i better get the big thermostat because i don't have to run upstairs and get more coffee so here it is <laughs> well
3: actually there you say something for a while we carried a thermostat with us oh wow you remember we we had
0: one in in yes. What was it, in Norway? In Norway, I think I, I saw you posted something about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I think it might have been. Yeah, it was a gift from a friend
3: and uh, we ended up using that for a little while, but eventually it it, uh, it got shipped back because we, we used it too little and it took in too much space.
0: All right, now the yeah. next one might be a very Dutch-centric question, but, uh, and it is the title of one of your posts, but chair or no chair? <laughs>
2: Yes, chair. <laughs> yes. well, yes, there's chair. such a there's such a big debate with this, but pff, I don't know we we've done we've done it both. We, we, you know, when you've never tried it, you're like, no, you don't need the chair. And it was when we were actually cycling in Central Asia, in the middle of nowhere, where we met this old, old uh, lady. On like she was touring by herself. Uh, she had met actually with uh, an American guy, and she was carrying this chair. And you know, she was sitting outside of a yard, chilling on her fancy chair, and we had to sit on the floor. Mm-hmm. And then we actually got to try her chair, and it was like a revelation. We're like, yeah. oh my god, what is this? Like, what is this feeling on my back? <laughs> so yeah e- ever since we no, yeah, ever since we 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 thought like, okay, we're, we're gonna get a chair, I'm gonna try it and then we got the chairs and then we were touring in, in North America, which they proved to be useful, but not as useful because in North America you, you can find benches and places to sit. So whenever we're actually touring a bit more remotely, we love carrying the chairs because uh, especially me after that Central Asia trip, I, I got a bit of uh, some bag issues so it's just great and you know it's it's a bit clunky it's it's big but they're very light and i think that for for what they bring and what they offer it's worth to carry the extra weight so i'd rather sacrifice on taking no, a pair of pants less or a couple less things but i i bring my chair with me
0: a couple less bags <laughs> of medicine yeah <laughs> um i actually talked to two to dutch girls i forget what episode it was but not too too long ago and they were the same opinion they're like yeah it's always the dutch people we have our little chairs and we're so comfortable and you see everybody sitting on the wet ground miserable and they said the chair yeah. and they make them pretty lightweight now. So I guess uh,
3: maybe that's just, the Dutch thing of feeling prepared or having the <laughs> urge to feel as prepared as possible. Yeah, yeah.
2: I know. We were we were cycling this summer with two friends, one from Spain and one from the UK. And they were not, not they didn't have the chairs. And in the evenings, Tristan and I were sitting and cooking on these chairs and we're like, oh, can I try it? Um, uh, oh, I think I'm actually going to get one because... Because it, it is comfortable, you know, at the end of the day, um, you need to see what's better for yourself. If you mm-hmm. value this extra comfort, then I think it's, for me, it's totally worth to to carry
0: the yeah. extra. What, what brand are the chairs? Uh,
2: the ones that we have are from Helinox. Helinox.
3: Yeah. yeah. And those, I mean, we carry the zero chairs that they have. They are pricey. They are really pricey. So it's not something to be taken lightly. I think you can get knockoffs for for much less, but the quality is great. The weight is amazing, yeah. and the fact yeah. that you you just have to experience sitting on a chair when you're exhausted from a day's bike ride or two days bike ride. That's when you really decide if you are going to carry it along or not. So I I was thinking about how you can you can make make the the bet on if if you need it. You could do like a two day, really long bike ride, then go to your local shop that has them and sit down and just see how you feel.
0: Oh, that something again. like
3: that. Yeah, I mean, in the shop here, they, they have them, uh, they have them just ready to be sat on. So you okay. can, you can test it out. But of course, if you're comfortable and w- well fed and, you know, you just come from your house, then it won't feel the same but if you test them out after a long day wow it makes such a difference uh, i'll keep that in mind i was
2: actually yeah i was actually thinking of our friends at uh, Jean-Simon from 260 Litros that they they made a, a drastic transition into like hardcore backpacking and we asked him once and he told us that the thing that he misses most about backpacking is that he cannot carry his chair so
0: you know uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe fit a little frame, a little rack and a frame top bag or a rack top bag, yeah. I and mean, then he could still keep it on top. Well,
2: they're very minimal, so yeah, I'm not yeah. sure.
0: Um, <laughs> so let's talk about the tour. I mean, we've uh, we could talk all day about gear. I think, but we're we're here <laughs> to talk about the tour in the book. So the first uh, the first big part on your tour was, uh, or in your book, is about Norway. So. I think we, if we just kind of talk through the different places in, uh, in the book, and that'll give people an understanding of why these turned out to be so special to you. Um, and you did mention that the reasons for starting in Norway, such as the, the wild camp ability um, and the views. How did you decide on your route? What was, the, uh, what was the planning there? Time for a quick interruption to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventure partners. Bike Tour Adventures podcast is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch Aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat post paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Beginning in 2010, with environmental sustainability as the main focal point, ReStrap has been in the bag-making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Named after the animals that roamed the Tibetan Plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre-Arnaud Lemanga in 2009. After noticing a lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast website.
3: Do you remember
0: how we started out
3: with the, the route planning for Norway, Dean?
0: Well,
2: uh, we, we knew what it was going to be the summer, so summer means north always. Um, yeah. Then summer in Norway yeah, meant that we could go all the way to the Arctic Circle and we could enjoy the midnight sun. And after that, I think that for Norway, we didn't really have a route. We had only spots that we wanted to cycle by. So it was just about connecting them. We had no idea about, uh, about GPS tracks or anything, because when we started, we were just like, oh, I'm just going to cycle and see what happens. But eventually, we came up with a very sweet route all the way to to Bergen in Norway. Um, Tristan didn't want to go further south because he had been there before, and he said that we had already cycled the most beautiful part of Norway. Selfish
0: so. man. <laughs> <laughs>
2: was like I've seen this; it's not worth it. So let's uh, <laughs> let's continue. <laughs>
0: yeah. Any uh, any regrets on not hitting up North Cape? I mean, you guys were not that far away from North Cape.
3: Yeah, but I mean, we flew to Tromsø, so it, it wasn't really as if we had reached it all the way. I think North Cape is a, a victory place where you okay. go, you're cycling all the way there. Not and, to you know, start here
0: at the top move. of the world and you're like, why are we starting here? <laughs> yeah.
3: No, I think you need to get there on your bike and then feel the victory of being at the edge of the world, just like the South Cape. You know, there's people doing North Cape, South Cape, and that's... That's what I think it's meant for. We just went up uh, north as far as possible to be able to then cycle down.
2: Yeah, I mean, Tristan and I have a tendency to do things the other way around. Also, we're not sure why, but somehow we end up doing all our destinations the, the wrong way. Like people uh, you, know. women in Norway, they were going from south to north we did the Pamir, uh, the way, with the Pamir.
0: We're going to talk about the, the Pamirs. I, I yeah. uh, you're the first ones I've seen to go backwards. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. We also north, north America, West Coast, from South to North, which you should never do because of the wind yeah. and the road direction. Right. You, you'll always yeah. be on the inside of the road, not seeing the view. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, oh, uh, like yeah. that, we're, we're not technical with the route planning. But I, I must say that because Belen uh, is so good with planning routes nowadays that I tend to get a little bit lazy on the route planning because she does a splendid job using different platforms oh, to okay. kind of find the best way while staying flexible so we we've really worked out a system where she decides most of the route and then depending on how we feel we do it or not also because you know if we have to push or um, go through a really uh, really bad stretch i would feel bad if i would put belen there but the other way around that's not the case uh, i'll go with anything she says and if she decides it's a, it's too hard or it's not not good we need to go back then yeah. i'm fine with it because i haven't planned it
0: yeah, and it was her plan that's being modified, and it's not like you have to, you, you don't feel like you've caused some kind of injury or whatever. Yeah, that makes, that's, yes. a good, that's a good reason.
3: <laughs> I mean, I, I have to respect her parents, you know, and they wish that I always take care of her, so I, <laughs> I have to respect her.
0: Good stuff. Um, yes. Yeah, so what, were, what were some when, of your favorite things about cycling in Norway? You go ahead,
2: Well… Yeah, I think that the the wild camping is just the best, and like I said, the fact that you can just put your tent in your no, it's gonna be a beautiful st- spot regardless. Also, there's barely any cars and uh, vehicles. There are super respectful, so really, no no Norwegian will pass you on the road unless they have a clear side and they can actually pass you on the other lane. So that felt very very secure, very safe, and very relaxed for for cycling. Yeah.
3: Right. I would add that in the future, this is a bit of a geeky side of mine, but I would say that it's only going to get better because there's only pretty much only electric vehicles, so you don't have any smells on the way, uh, which I I think adds a great deal because considering the fact that on the Bama Highway, you're always in the smogs, uh, it can be quite difficult. In Norway, you won't see any of that. And then the fact that that they also have these things called the which, call, which we talk about in the book. It's basically a place where people can stop for the night uh, and rest up with a caravan or bikes or tent or whatever you want to put there. There's usually a little bathroom. It's all public. And sometimes they have even a, uh, like a dryer or warm water. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it, it's yeah. really like a little pit stop on the way. It's uh, yeah. something that I would consider very important if you appreciate the luxuries of being able to clean yourself up.
0: The benefits of
3: yeah, having I mean, 50% Norway... tax, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially for tourists is great. Uh, yeah. I mean, Norway is an expensive country, so we were only staying in hotels when we were hitting a city. In the in-betweens, we were just camping as much as we could. So little little stops like this in the resting areas, pff, they saved us completely, yeah.
3: Yeah, and then usually the hotels in Norway also have a really big buffet. Nowadays, I guess it's a bit different with the current situation, but the big buffet helps when you're cycling, obviously. So if you do have to stay somewhere, you usually get uh, your money's worth. We had a special salad day, I think, every week on a Sunday or something like that, because salad is so expensive. That okay. We ended up doing it as a special moment. Yeah. When we would come through the city. What, Otherwise, without... we'd be eating bread and peanut butter.
0: When my when my friend Nima cycled through Norway, he found out from a friend of his that uh, lives in Finland that um, it's incredibly easy to dumpster dive in Norway and get really really high quality yes. produce. Did you guys do any dumpster diving?
2: Well, yeah, yeah, because we we got a recommend from a Norwegian friend. Actually, he he would be like, oh look, all the things that I found. And we felt a bit of, I don't know, like, well, well, what if we were caught? We were so, like, scared the first time we did it. We didn't do it often, like, maybe two or three times. But uh, I think the first time was because we were actually sitting next to a supermarket having lunch. And we just saw a lady coming out of the supermarket and, and throwing, like, a bunch of cherries into the trash. And we're like, no, that didn't just happen. Cherries were, I don't know, maybe, like... A quarter of a of a kilo is ten euros so oh, wow. twelve dollars. So then we were like, Okay, let's go take a look. And that's when we opened the the container and we saw these bags of beautiful cherries. Maybe there were only a couple that were bad bad. And so we took some with us and then after that we were like, Okay, we need to we need to <laughs> take advantage of the situation in some way. Yeah. So in in our way we did the dumpster dive. I don't think we've done it in any other country, have we? No
0: no we haven't no, they're probably just, very just clean the dumpsters it. there too though so it's not like they're dirty, <laughs> oh, yeah. dirty disgusting things yeah. you know like
3: well they, they tend to throw somehow they they tend to throw kind of new things and fresh things with maybe a little rip or just mm-hmm. one that has gone bad of whatever mm-hmm. they throw it's a, it's a so weird
0: it's, thing right like when I think of like in a lot of countries if uh, like when I lived in Asia and like Malaysia and stuff you went to a market they would be picking through things and taking out the things that are spoiling they wouldn't just dump the whole pile you know <laughs> Mm-hmm. yeah but it's yeah, a very it v- very western mindset is like oh, i'll just get rid of it like yeah.
3: yeah 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 totally totally so well i think uh yeah carry on throughout the the journeys after that we did a bit of um interrail kind of a mix between train and bike that mm-hmm. was more a, a video experiment it, it's not mentioned in the book but uh we ended up in in Italy, through that.
0: I think you mentioned and, it briefly. Yeah. You mentioned like when you were in cycling, that you had the Dolomites section, and you mentioned a little bit about the yeah. the the picture. And there was a picture, yeah. I think, of Belen in the sticking her head out the train or something.
2: Yeah. It, it so, so so we thick. we got from Norway to Italy with a train. That's oh, how we did okay. it.
0: Yeah. yeah, but it was so hectic. We
3: we really wanted to. To dedicate some part of the book to it, mm-hmm. but it was really hectic. Okay, I mean, we didn't end up taking enough pictures. Can, I, can we before we jump to are, that?
0: Are before we jump there, can I ask last two things about Norway and Belen? How was it to yeah. um, get used to the big climbs on a bike after you know flat Dutch land and uh, not Deutschland, yeah. but you know Dutch land? It um, was
2: it, was, it was horrible. My my beginning was horrible. Um, I I remember we arrived in. In Tromsø, on the last days of May, we started cycling, I think on the 2nd of June. And I remember cycling out of out of the city, turning to the left, and immediately there was something like a 50% climb. And I think I did, I don't know, like less than a kilometer, and I started crying already. Um, I, I started getting anxiety, like I could, I couldn't breathe properly. Um, also I must say that I have asthma, so I have the, the best combination uh, for a cyclist. So I, I started crying and everything was hurting that evening, that first evening camping. I had never camped before. Like I said, it was snowing. So I was super cold and you know, the beginning was very tough for me. I think, um, it took me about two weeks to eventually get the hang of of the situation and actually start to enjoy. But yeah, the first two weeks were, were tough for me because everything was hurting. Everything was very tough for me. Also, maybe, you know, the, the bike, it's the first bike. It takes a few kilometers to actually get it to adapt to you, yeah. to you, to understand the bike, to, you know, the gears, how it works properly. But yeah, the first two weeks i must assessed, they were horrible. The first month after that it was fine. And then after Norway, I was hooked into traveling my bike.
0: Cool. All right. That's, that's very well said. And, uh, the last thing tunnels, what was, um, I know some tunnels you can ride through some, you can't, how do you plan for this?
3: So there, there is a great website and I think it's cycletourer.co.uk. Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's, it's that web address. They have, uh, an interactive map on the Norway chapter of their website which shows every single tunnel in the country. It's continuously updated and they show them with colors. So you have Mm. red, orange or yellow, green and white, and you can actually add information to the the tunnel map. So uh, let's say that we cycle through a tunnel, which on the map is white. So the system knows it, but no one has actually put information on it. I could submit information, even photos and say, oh, we just cycle through this, Uh, you know, in the middle, there's a bit of a sketchy section where you're, you can't see the traffic so much, or this tunnel goes under the the water. So it's quite uh, full of fumes, be careful. Um, You can cycle through it, it's legal, or there is a sign that you can't do it, so on. And I can decide the color and then they'll get back to me and say, uh, you know, thank you for your, for your info, we'll update the map. It's crucial for a journey in Norway, okay. that you use this website and this, this map.
2: Yep, yeah. and sometimes if there's a map that's in red and you cannot cycle through, the only alternative you have is to hitchhike or to just go up a pretty 600 meter mountain pass. Yeah, that's the only thing okay. about Norway, but there's a lot of climbing. So there
0: are ways around usually, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. There's usually always a way around. Mm-hmm. It might mean a massive time.
0: Okay. Yeah. Or always. cool. Always? Yeah. Um, so after yeah. after Norway, like you said, you took a train. I think uh, by then, Belen was loving the mountains, so you decided to go right to the Dolomites and start climbing more mountains. Is that essentially the uh, what happened here?
2: Yeah. <laughs> we actually did uh, all of the Alps. We did at least the Swiss and the French Alps. We did two, but uh, the Dolomites was the superstar of the Alps. That's why we decided to include in the... In the book, and uh, we actually called it uh, five passes in five days, because it's actually what you do. Basically, you climb passes when you're in the in the Dolomites, and we did it off season. We did it in um, autumn, so yeah, about right now. And it it is great for cycling because the winter is too cold. Of course, Mm -hmm. there's no other skiing. The summer is full of tourists, but the the shoulder seasons are magnificent for cycling. And there's actually a lot of people up there, a lot of racing cyclists. So the atmosphere is great. It's prepared for for cyclists.
0: Yeah, so people the drivers around there are used to it, right? Sorry, go ahead, Tristan.
3: Yeah, but I was just saying that another thing that you get in autumn is the light on the mountains. It is so so beautiful you get this orange red glow on on these uh the the stones that they have it's really really beautiful time to cycle there and while it was difficult to cycle all those passes at the same time it was promising because every time you made it up you then got the reward of going down i think at the end of the five days we were we were really tired but it was a a good project to have done i I would recommend it Mm -hmm. what do you think b
2: yeah, no, no. I, we love the Dolomites. We've been there already like four times, and actually, um, we also like hiking there. So sometimes we got to leave our bikes somewhere and go for a little hike too. It's a perfect place to combine mm-hmm. hiking with cycling. Yeah.
0: So, did you guys cycle there the four times? So this was, I think, I've read that you guys did different kind of tours there each time, right?
2: Yeah, we've done everything. We've done like by vehicle, hiking, and by bicycle. Awesome. Yeah,
0: cool. <laughs> um, did you guys I think you're are you guys allowed is there camping up there or how did where did you guys stay did you stay in hotels or what was your situation Yeah we're going depends into on the a, time we
2: were there yeah
0: we're going into a little bit of a gray area here
3: <laughs>
2: We we've been in hotels uh, the last times uh, but the f- the first time we were there by bike we were mostly camping because it was off season so there was okay. barely no one It did mean that in the evenings it got below zero. Mm. Um, Yeah, so it was pretty cold, but there was no one. And, you know, in Europe, like in most, I guess, the same in North America, maybe in Canada too, you're theoretically not allowed to camp. But there's... You know, little twists around this rule, as in, if you're a cyclist, if you're not seen, if you put your tent after it gets dark, take it off yeah. before sunrise, and you know, no one sees you. Then it should be okay. Yeah. Just leave the place as you found it. And that's what we did in the Dolomites. Um, it is true that many areas are protected natural parks, so those those places we do try to respect and stay away, also because there is a uh, wildlife. Mm. Um, but otherwise, we just try to be careful and. Just
0: think, please, you know, yeah. think Pretty a little sensible. bit about what we're doing. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Um, so then, you guys, you guys had a section on the Iberian Peninsula. Now, I'll, I'll be really honest with you, as a Canadian, I was like, Iberian Peninsula. I mean, is that Spain? Is what is that? Is that like a part of Spain? And yeah. then I realized, oh, it's actually like all of Spain and Portugal, essentially, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, and Andorra, and and yeah. I think it also takes a little bit oh, of yeah. the French-Pyrenees. But yeah. the thing is that we after that, we we closed our first nine-month tour after the Dolomites, and we went back home. And after that, we did small tours. So we did Portugal in one section, we did the Canary Islands in one section, and then we did the south of Spain in another section. So we were just trying to find for the right name to combine all of these trips, and that's how also Iberian Peninsula came into into place. Yeah, yeah. nice.
0: Um, tell us about cycling in, um, in I guess, uh, south of Spain or in that region in the Iberian Peninsula in winter. Um...
3: Yeah, I, I guess it comes down to different experiences. Uh, I don't think you can, I don't think we can safely say what it's going to be like. It might be different every year, but our experience was that it it could rain a lot. So one day, we were there with two other friends, by the way. They uh, came to to visit us uh, in Málaga, and we cycled the Ruta de los Pueblos Blancos, so the white village route. Uh, It's a beautiful part of Spain, and it's great again in the shoulder season. Mm -hmm. We were there in in November, so it was quite late. But the weather was stable, kind of cold, and it can rain. You can have have days on which it rains a lot, and then you (laughs) preferably have to be somewhere safe. So, yeah, we, we weren't and we were on this mountain pass. We got crazy rain. And then when we arrived in Ronda, we decided to go into a little apartment and dry up for two days with the air conditioning on. Um, it's, uh, it's an area that I, I would always consider going after September, October, November, more or less, maybe the springtime, because of the, the fact that it just can get really hot in the summers mm. and really cold in the winters. Uh, The scenery is beautiful. Uh, We had a blast with our friends there. We were using a kind of uh, camping slash hotel way of staying around. They preferred hotels. We preferred wild camping. So we just combined it and sometimes paid the fee altogether. And that was actually a really nice way of doing it because the south of Spain and Portugal actually too, they have good networks of cheap hotels where you, you might not get a breakfast or a buffet, but... You can sleep in a dry place and catch a bit of the, the village atmosphere, okay. which I think is an essential part of cycling in, in those uh, in those parts of the countries because they're full of history and they're just really cute and beautiful to look at. Yeah. In Portugal, we had this um, this uh, habit that we would go for our coffee every single morning in any cafe. Okay. Because any village you get to, as sleepy as it might be, there will always be a cafe with some grumpy old man. You know, playing cards and you just sit down there with your bikes. It's a, a very nice experience to indulge a little bit. And actually, off topic, slightly, compared with Norway, we were making up finances later because we keep track of them in an in a Excel document. And we ended up spending more in Portugal than we spent in Norway. Simply because of the fact that we were indulging. Okay. Because you know, if you're tired, you go into an Airbnb or a little hotel. Like oh, it's just 10 yeah, guess, Euros. yeah, exactly. It's yeah.
1: okay. And then oh,
3: the coffee fifty <laughs> cents. You know, I'll order three and I'll have this little bakery treat with it. So yeah. So that, that kind of creeped its way into into our wallets. Yeah,
2: but it's very enjoyable, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: There's Definitely. a there's a time and a place. I think as after doing some harder things and, you know, like re- being really frugal in yeah. an inexpensive country, you fly there and you say, Okay, we're gonna treat ourselves to some nice bike right. touring, you know? Yeah. Um, can you tell me what uh what about, what are bike hotels and casa rurales or however you say it? Yeah.
2: Well, Bike Hotel we discovered when we went to Portugal, it, but I haven't seen it in Spain, okay. but uh, in Spain you can find the other kind, the Casarurales. Basically Bike Hotel, it was a platform we found online where it gathers all different kinds of stays in Portugal that are bike friendly. Uh-huh. So they will, it means that they will have a place to store your bike, they will have probably repair kits, they, they have sometimes like special diets for cyclists, so like high caloric or carbohydrate mm-hmm. diets. And it's just basically uh, a friendly experience because you know sometimes when you stay in a hotel, you go there, they, they look at you like, oh, why are you bringing your muddy bike into my beautiful reception? We don't have a place to put your bike. Then sometimes we were asking if we could keep the bike in the in the bedroom because we were like, wanna keep it safe. So it was very cool to find this platform for Portugal because mm, every really. we we used it yeah for a few times and every time it was just fantastic. Like they were prepared for cyclists and they actually encourage cyclists to come over and they have maps and recommendations for routes.
4: Oh sweet. And
2: um yeah, Casa Rurales are are some kind of like bed and breakfast stays in Spain, but they're usually in small villages, so they're very cheap and uh, you basically know that you're helping someone local with their business and mm-hmm. you'll get the more purest experience that you can get when you, you visit them yeah it's not okay. like zero tourism it's just come and stay with us in this little cute hotel and you'll have the typical food and you'll meet the typical yeah. spanish locals yeah. yeah
0: and it's people that might not otherwise have a website but they you always know that when you get to like a little village there's probably a casa yeah. somewhere. Casa
2: Loral, yeah.
3: I think on the subject of helping locals with these mm-hmm. Casa Rurales it, because you usually find them through booking.com. Oh, you do. Okay. It's been said that booking.com, mm-hmm. I mean, they take a big fee and blah, blah, blah. But if you really want to help someone, you could always find them through booking and then contact them privately. Yeah. And they'll yeah. be open for that too. Yeah. I've had a and lot of hotel, people, they just have a website.
0: I, I've known people who are touring, not necessarily bike touring, but just backpacking touring, whatever, um, mm-hmm. that refuse to, to use things like booking.com and they just, yeah. they will say they'll find the place, they'll call them and say, this is how much you're asking for on booking. Will you match that price? And then they know that at least they're not paying that 25% or whatever fee to booking. Yeah. So maybe right. they, they save a few euros and then they save it. Everybody wins, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good sorry point. Sorrybooking.com. Sorry. Booking. <laughs> <com>. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Um, what is the cycling infrastructure like in Portugal? I think it's something that keeps growing, right? It's it's becoming better and better? Or? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, mean, I mean,
3: in the south of Europe, you're pretty stuck to just regular roads and lots of traffic, usually. But I would say them. Portugal, Portugal is, is one of the better ones when it comes to cycling infrastructure.
2: Yeah, in some stretches, you'll be able to be off-road, but eventually to get to one place to the other, if you want to make some kilometers, then you'll have to occasionally join um, national roads, they're called. And those are usually narrow and with traffic.
3: Yeah, yeah. but then they also have bike lane stretches, where it's yeah. specifically, for example, from Porto out to the coast and then a little bit southwards, uh, they have these train tracks that were uh, meant for the train, and then they took the rails and put bike lanes right, instead. Yeah, yep. those you can find throughout the country. We didn't find many of them, but they are out there. And as for Spain, I mean, Spain is is experiencing a transformation when it comes to cycling because cycling in Spain is seen as you know speedy bombs of light Zooping by and taking up the road with four in a row and all that. But it's transforming to commuting. Mm-hmm. And I think that will set a kind of foundation for infrastructure mm-hmm. to come by. So where Belen is in Valencia, they already rolled out a lot of bike lanes. There's still a bit, it's like a puzzle, but they're there. And so people are slowly getting used to it. Oh, neat. I think it starts from the centers and then just works their way outwards. If you're talking about rural areas in spain and, and portugal it's just, it's very difficult to come by bike infrastructure that's just okay. the way it is for me
2: and hey remember that spain is not flat because many people come here thinking like oh yeah you know spain whatever is sunny no 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 if you go a little bit inland just you know 100 meters like no not even like 10 kilometers off the coastline it's hilly, it's mountainous, and it snows in Spain, yeah. So mm-hmm. just, just <laughs> let's just midify this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. In, uh, in Ottawa here, we have, um on, on the bridges between Ottawa and Quebec, they have counters that tell you how many cyclists go past every day. So oh, it's cool. like an electronic system just to try to encourage people to, you know, in some days when it's nice days here. It's in the thousands. It's not crazy numbers because... Canada is not always very warm, um, but it's, it's definitely a nice thing to see. Yeah. Yeah. I Um, mean,
3: there's not so many people out there, so a thousand would still make a big difference.
0: Yeah. I mean, it gets pretty high. Well, there's about five, six different bridges, so it adds up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Canary Islands. I, I didn't put too much in terms of questions about the Canary Islands. I thought you could just tell us a little bit about them and, uh, um, how the islands are different from one another and if there's anything in particular or any one island that you you liked that stood out to you.
2: Yeah. Well, the, the Canary Islands came in mind. Um, well, I knew them already quite well, being Spanish. Um, they're off the coast of Morocco, so they're far away, but they're, they still feel very Spanish. And uh, we were actually looking for a winter destination because... Um, yeah, we didn't want to go too far away, but uh, yeah, so eventually we, we, we thought, oh, let's go to the Canary Islands. And uh, we only wanted to do this if there was a way to actually go from an island to another one without having to fly, because, you know, packing your bike every, every week or so is not fun. So... Eventually, we figured out that, yes, there's both connections between all of the islands. Uh, right now, there's officially eight. By the time we did it, it was still seven. But now, one of the smallest ones has become the official eighth island. It's called La Graciosa. Um, so, yeah, we decided to go there. And we we called the project Seven Weeks, Seven Islands. And that's more or less what we did. Some islands required a little bit more than seven days to see them fully. And others are, you're okay with just maybe four um, but it was a lovely, lovely winter destination. Um, we really like them because they're so Martian for what we're used to in Europe. They're just like nothing else you can find here. and actually, the seven of them they're very different from each other. The further east the islands are, they're more dry, more more volcanic, and the further west they're more green. so you have a bit of everything.
3: Yeah, what was they're, your they're... your
2: favorite? They're
3: all like little paradise places. They're, it's it's almost a shame to compare them to each other because every single one of them has their own unique qualities. I think that Gran Canaria was my favorite, overall speaking, but Lanzarote for example, which there is a beautiful photo in the book which we took with a drone that shows this, uh, this volcanic landscape the red and black and if you've never been to Iceland and you want to have a, an experience like that, but with warmth, Lan- Lantarote is really the place
0: to go. And that's kind of it's the most beautiful do so right? that. Yeah, it's yeah. actually the
2: it's... cover of the book of bike life that oh, okay. is in Lantarote.
3: Yeah.
0: Okay. Yes. Yeah, we we like to
3: play this game, saying, "Hey, where where do you think this is?" And people go, uh, "Tajikistan or something?" No, it's close to home. Uh, Iceland. Iceland. Maybe? Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Eventually, people go to the Canary Islands. (laughs) So, yeah. Just like Belen said, they're they're all very, very beautiful. The only thing that you have to keep in mind if you do cycle the Canary Islands is that you probably don't want to do it like us unless you bring an electric bike. Because if you climb every single island and then descend it and do that one after the other, at the end of it, you're going to be very tired, Mm. which happened to us and... You know, our productivity and enjoyment went down a lot when we came to the last island just because we were so exhausted and we had knee pain. And, you know, it was it was a tricky journey to do in uh, in such a short time period. But doing them one by one or really spending two weeks in one of the bigger islands or even three weeks, you can see so much. And it's it's the kind of scenery that you wouldn't see elsewhere in Europe. They're very just very unique they have the spanish culture so it's all very cozy you know the food tastes great uh, the cycling is fantastic the well, weather is I just nice. pick
2: avocados from the side of the road oh, also nice. wow. we you were picking avocado. up
3: wow. mangoes Fashion everything
2: fruits,
3: yeah. mangoes avocados awesome.
0: chestnuts, nuts grapes uh,
3: everything
1: yeah
0: um, <laughs> I'm on my way. Hold on, I'm packing. I'm getting my wife to pack a bag now.
2: <laughs>
0: no, I'm. I, I'm definitely. Uh, I can't wait to. You know, I just started teaching here in Canada, and I have so many plans to bike tour at some point. Like to do an extended tour, but it definitely has to be uh, accommodating. I have to always oh, like you said you know when when belen was starting you got to be thinking about what's good for her you know because the same with my mm-hmm. wife she's not a big bike tour she's done a, a couple like a thousand kilometer tour we did here in canada last year yeah and um yeah. so it's baby steps
1: yeah
3: yeah well the canary islands maybe yeah, it's a little bit big it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh no i i would actually say that spain coming back to spain mainland spain is really really good for a first bike tour okay. because you get those little indulgements it's not too expensive the scenery is beautiful so you know both sides of the relationship can get their their satisfactions and uh, the, depending on where you go in the country it's great for first timers as well okay good to know uh, except norway's already on your list then i mean it wins of course but <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i think um i think e-bikes is such a great thing i know you're, you're two friends that traveled with you guys in spain they used e-bikes but i think you're still it's still a point where you can't really fly with them right because the batteries i, I believe okay. no. unless you have so a company we,
2: agreement yeah you cannot we we know people that have shipped them but they had problems at the customs maybe they, they it was difficult to get them through customs yeah. so e-bikes is uh, basically ideal if you like if you're european and you take some train to a nearby country then it's great but or for international rent. trips yeah, yeah or so for renting of course yeah but you yeah. you cannot just take them to the other side of the world just like that
0: that's
3: right no, especially if you're flying to a location that's only reachable by flight it's very
0: difficult yeah, yeah. Or, or, or if you're going to the I was going to say, or if you're going to the stands, um, an e-bike and electricity up in those mountains, it might be hard to find. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, we know a case about this uh, lady. She's called Pedelec Adventures. That's how she calls herself on social media. And she has done Mongolia on an e-bike. But truth is, she was carrying a solar panel behind her so that she could charge it. So, you know... I mean, it was. A, it's very cool to hear her story. She made it work, but of course, you need to carry some kind of infrastructure with you to to charge the bike.
3: Awesome! Yeah. She, I love she's it. been doing electric bike stuff for like ten years. Uh, she's very specialized when it comes to e-bikes and all the knowledge. She yeah. knows ways to get to make it happen, but I yeah. would say it's not for for the regular everyday person yeah, who just yeah, wants to yeah. do a journey. Then it's better to rent or just to make the compromise and use a regular bike. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about. Uh, the stands. Um, you guys cycled Kyrgyzstan and then Tajikistan. Um, as we mentioned earlier, you you did the Pamirs backwards. Can you tell us a bit about your trip and uh, why you started up in Bishkek and uh, and go from there?
2: Yeah. Well, Tristan can tell you actually why we wanted to go to Central Asia first.
0: Oh, it's a beautiful story. The same reason everybody wants to, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have
3: to thank uh, a warm-shower host, from Wales. Maybe he's listening. Who knows? His name is Daniel. And I stayed with him uh, one rainy afternoon when I was cycling in the UK. Uh, he welcomed me at home. You know, I got showered and fed and all that. And then we sat down to talk about each other's stories. And at some point in his story, he goes, oh, wait, hold on. I'll get a little book that I made. So he, he takes this book and he says, yeah, it's photos from my journey in Central Asia. I'm like, Central Asia, where is that? And he opens up the book and all I see is this beautiful, massive mountain snowcapped yeah. with yurts in the front and a little lake. And I go, Whoa, <laughs> okay. We're talking, I want to go there. And he goes on to, to tell me about the Pamir highway and how it, it was such a great journey to go there. Um, it, it was the seed that essentially was planted by him and grew into this wild idea to go to central Asia. Uh, which we didn't know much about the mm-hmm. preparation was slim and we got to bishkek only knowing about the pamir highway so our our initial plan was to cycle the m41 which is the, mm-hmm. the main highway of the country and get to the pamir highway because that was what we were there for so when we got to the hostel and we started talking about this plan with other people people were saying no you're you're mental but like, don't go on the highway first of all but try to see Kyrgyzstan because it's a beautiful country. I just came from there or there or this lake or that mountain. And eventually we said, okay, we we can give it a go. We have a month after all, so why not? And we started zigzagging the country. Okay. And that's when we really, really fell in love with Kyrgyzstan because it's it's uh, maybe the most beautiful country on earth. All the natural scenery it has to offer. This amazing culture full of generosity. they are... Think it's mostly predominantly muslim mm-hmm. and they are always very hospitable people but in kyrgyzstan that's just elevated you can be lost at 3600 meters elevation find some yurt with a, an elderly couple and they'll welcome you inside feed you and you know even with a lang- language barrier try to communicate mm-hmm. and spend their time with you and these people live uh, very challenging lives so you know uh, couple like us just coming out there and being welcomed so warmly that was really really an amazing side of central asia
0: all right so i want you to tell us a story about uh riding up the mountains towards song cool and uh i think you had a beautiful little story of what happened and um if it if it doesn't ruin your book to share it yeah. so if it's gonna ruin your book don't share it
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, the book is full of stories, so we, we can at least share this one. Um, basically the, the 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 way to Sonko is is tough. Uh, we had never really done this kind of off-road tagging before. There was a lot of washboard the we had about rain for two days and uh, two days just to get to the beginning of the climb to Sonko, which is on um, 3,000 I think 600 meters, something like that. So um, we crossed what like right? Three vehicles in two days um, and we were just fine. But eventually one of the, the day we were just about to start the climb, we stopped to fill up the water by the side of the road and it was starting to snow. And uh, th- this is in the summer, by the way, as in you have to cycle in these country in the summer and still you might get snow in July and August. Yes, it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just uh, putting this water and suddenly a, a big white van stopped in front of us. I think it was it wasn't because of us. I think the, the driver, the guy, he, he just had to go for a pee. And, and then he saw us and there was a bit of eye contact and we actually felt a little bit vulnerable and tired and cold. So eventually we started this interaction where he he started like waving with his hand as in, oh, come over. And he offered us a ride up to the yurts. Um, so it was very, yeah, we, we said yes, of course. They opened the van. Inside the van, there was his mother, his niece, I guess, and a lot of food and supplies. So we kind of fit in the bikes. We sat in the bank, back of the, of the truck with them and we just went up on this bumpy road with very curious music in the background. It was quite surreal.
3: It was an epic <laughs> experience. Was, yeah, this was for the movies. We had we had on one side of this small van on this rocky road with literal uh, rocks the size of our the size of our heads on the on the path. Yeah, uh, one one side was a ravine, and the other side was a steep wall with a lot of snow falling off. And that combined with this Kyrgyz kind of pop rock music yeah, yeah. blasting through the sneakers and all the zigzags that this road had, it was insane. I think we just, at, in those kind of moments, you shut off your 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 cautious brain. You just enjoy the experience. But we were definitely looking at each other.
0: I've, like, I've traveled a little something. bit. In, uh, I lived in Russia for a while when I was younger, in, uh, in my 20s, and... Um, travel in Russia and Mongolia, and yet they always have loud, loud music. It's like, yeah. there's no such thing as quiet background music. It's
2: just <laughs> also very festive, it like it, always with a lot of rhythm.
0: Yeah.
3: Right. And it comes
0: from these these
3: little USB uh, drives that they carry. So yep. that's that's the, the thing that we, we eventually worked out, that they kind of copy and, sh- and share them with For each sure. other. So everyone has their personal USB drive. It's like, like a currency this, of sorts. This, like, yeah. <laughs>
0: um so i forgot where i was <laughs> um so you actually mentioned about communicating how did you communicate with the people in in um, central asia i know it's it's, it's a big difference with uh, the russian language and their native tongues as well
2: yeah i mean nothing beats uh, gestures using your hands is the best you can do um but um Eventually, we discovered Google Translate and how you can download Russian offline. Wow. So that helped us so much because everyone there speaks Russian. Um, they don't type it very well. They don't know how to write very well. But if we would type something in English and then uh, have the boys translate it into Russian, then they would understand immediately. Mm-hmm. It was a problem then for them to type something in Russian and getting a clear translated, translation in English. But it was enough to to get basic conversation. Also, we had prepared some pictures on our phone. We had pictures of our family, of uh, things back home. So it was nice to learn the basic words like mm-hmm. mom, dad, family, dog, and we would just show them pictures. Yeah, and so vaca, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Mama. yeah,
2: exactly, yeah. Congrats, right, <laughs> And And Tristan, Tristan is learning Russian now, because maybe one day yeah. he can actually use it there.
0: Good for you, yeah. It's a hard yeah, language, but it's... it's uh...
3: Well, coming from Dutch, it's kind of kind of okay actually. You you're, uh, you're, at at you're northern primary. your
0: northern Europeans are so smart when it comes to languages, so I think uh, the sky's <laughs> the limit, you know.
3: Well, by the now I'm not proficient at all, huh? I, I can do very basic, very basic.
0: Cool. But uh, yeah,
3: I was learning it in case we, we go back to Central Asia. It's handy to know as a language. So if you plan going there, it's it's good to learn a bit of mm. Russian.
0: Um, how much time did you spend in Kyrgyzstan before making your way into Tajikistan? I know your initially, like you said, initial plan was to follow the M forty one, and then that all kind of changed. How much time did you give it?
2: I believe one it month. was about a month. Yeah, yeah. but we we, we are yeah we did one month. It, it was just enough to see parts of Kyrgyzstan. But I we we've been talking about this, and we would love to come back to fully explore this country. And I believe that you get ninety days or mm-hmm. well, sixty days free visa for Kyrgyzstan.
1: Oh, wow, From nice. for
2: most at, at least for most countries, if you're European, you you'll get it. So I would for sure say that you spend two months in Kyrgyzstan. Like the country deserves it, and there's so much to see, and it's just a wonderful mm-hmm. place to cycle. Yeah. yeah, awesome.
3: And I think same goes for Tajikistan. It's a little bit more tricky in terms of visa uh, and and feeling welcome. Uh, In terms of that, but because Kyrgyzstan is just so open, they're so Mm -hmm. open to people. You arrive in the airport, you know, some cop shakes your hands and welcomes you to the country. Tajikistan is a bit more closed off, but the people are similar. So there's a very similar culture of hospitality and the landscape is very different. So if you cycle both, you get a very nice uh, uh, comparison going on between the, the very dry and cold Tajikistan or super warm, depending on uh, if you go into the lower parts of the country and Kyrgyzstan, which is very large, full of glaciers, you know, water everywhere. Uh, but with similar people, similar cultures.
0: Okay. And do you feel like, um, because Tajikistan is so much more touristy with the premiers and bike touring and stuff, um, that it's the mentality is a little different?
2: Um, I think it's starting to change. Yes. Um, we, we only had it in a couple of occasions, and uh, you can understand why, but uh, we, for example, one of the days where we were doing the rough stretch between cord and uh, can I believe it was, we, we were fine, we were just cycling on the f- daily 45 degrees Celsius temperatures, and there was this four by four that, uh, kind of, I was ahead of Tristan. They kind of stopped or oh, no, I was behind you and it stopped next to me. And the guy was carrying two ladies on the back, well, two Tai women on the back. And he was kind of asking like, Oh, do you call at home? Yeah, like uh, as an offering a ride, do you guys want to come with me? Cause I'm going to go there, you know, all in broken hand language. So I called Tristan and I was like, "Hey, this guy is offering us a ride. That's not do. You want to skip a stretch? Let's like let's have an easy day." So we put the bikes on the back and we hopped into the car. And some minutes later, the driver was starting to ask for 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 money.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And we were like, "Oh, we're actually, <laughs> we were actually honestly very low on money by then because you can only take a." cash in like one city to sit in the whole country so you have to be very prepared and um yeah he was asking for money and we told him like look this is the situation we actually have no no money with us but we 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 thought you were inviting us and helping us and we told him, if you took A, you just leave us here. You don't need to take us anywhere. But eventually he was like, ah, oh, no, it's okay. I'll take you. But I, I think that, um, you know, there's more and more people there. There's not only cyclists now, there's also. More people spending money. Doors. Rending, and the doors. And o- overlanders ships. as
0: well with the big trucks. Yeah. yeah.
2: Exactly. So, you know, I mean, you cannot blame them. They they try to watch for money because they know that we have you know are in a better position mm-hmm. than they are. Mm-hmm. Perhaps cyclists are not the best people to try and, <laughs> to get, money. and get money from. <laughs> but uh, that happened to us in Tajikistan a couple of times. So I think that there's already some kind of a change going on throughout the Pamir Highway, especially. Yeah.
3: Okay. Yeah, it's, it's getting a bit more commercial, but in, in our experience, that was the, the few times we got hassled for money uh, wasn't comparable with all the times that we were welcomed. So okay. I think that's still very strong. Yeah, that's a very of good point to make. Yeah. There's a lot of people that just because of the sake of their culture, they say, no, 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 no money. We just offer you hospitality.
0: Yeah, they're very giving. De- definitely. It very, very giving in central... Well, a lot of the world, actually, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Definitely. So you guys, uh, you guys entered the Pamirs from the north, and I guess not too far after you enter is you're, you're at the first and the biggest climb, or not necessarily the first, but the biggest climb is up there in the north, I think, Ak Baital. Akbaita,
1: yeah. How is that? Well,
3: I, I don't remember. Uh, I think the story of the wind... There's something about the wind being one particular direction, but we weren't so worried about this climb because just to give a bit of background Mm -hmm. on the the profile, because I think that's what a lot of people look at when they plan the Pamir Highway journey and why a lot of people choose to go from west to east uh, is that the profile is very mild coming up through Tajikistan and then going into Kyrgyzstan. Okay. Uh, then there's a massive drop, which is basically consists of a few mountain passes that take you higher and higher. And we, we did it the other way. So we were climbing those mountain passes. Akvaital was just another mountain pass for okay. us. It was it to be the highest, but. It's a series of mountain passes, so you oh, okay. you eventually just get used to the fact that you are always on the mountain pass, and then a flat part, and then another pass.
0: You're like, one day we will go downhill, I promise.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> I which was true, baby.
3: <laughs> I mean, we did after our bite, though, we did eighty kilometers downhill with a tailwind, which was like a yeah. massive present to get into Murtab. Uh, I think, but you can't just—is it is
0: the road paved or is it? Uh... It was, like pretty, bro- it was pretty well paved. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's not Stages, like you're you're yes, taking uh, risking uh, your life on gravel roads going downhill for eighty kilometers. It's it's decent.
3: Yeah. I mean, it, it mm. could be compared to like the worst asphalt that we are used to here with potholes okay. and all that. But a there, that's really good asphalt. Yeah. So and I mean, yeah. considering the location, it's amazing that they built it in yeah, the first. It's
2: not off road. It's more like a gravel path. So except for specific stretches with a lot of washboard, then it's fine to cycle oh, through. Okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So Akbaital like was, uh, was a special experience just because it's so high. It's 4,655 meters. And getting up there takes a lot of effort. Um, but yeah, a lot of people prefer to do it the, the, the milder way through yeah. Tajikistan. Do you have any tips? Think,
0: oh, go
3: ahead. Uh, yeah. I mean, if, as a tip, if you look at the wind direction, people say that it works better to go through Tajikistan. But I would say that it's nicer to get the mountain passes over with, and then mildly go down mm. through the country. Even if you have a headwind, yeah. Yeah, rather than always be cycling slightly uphill. Because if you then get a headwind, you have the double problems. Yeah. And if you're at least mildly going down, you have a headwind. It doesn't matter. True. True.
0: Um, any but, tips? Any tips with over. regards to um, altitude and acclimatizing?
1: It's very personal.
2: I, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I had everything with me. But I, the thing is, it's very personal. I felt fine and Tristan did not. So you never know. Like, and that can change, you know, maybe next time you return, maybe you are getting sick and your partner is not. Mm-hmm. So you, you never know. But um, yeah, there's there's altitude sickness pills for that, which eventually help you even go pee more. So you release oh, some nice. pressure. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know what it's in the US. I guess it changes yeah. in every place. But yes, yeah. uh, they're very simple piece that the pills. <laughs> piece, <not> the pills. <laughs> so
3: that's yeah, got, actually got the got only thing we could because... we got offered them in uh, in the well in the south of Kyrgyzstan, we crossed a Spanish family and they were just coming from there. They didn't need them anymore. And they gave them to me. Ah. Uh, and I was using them more than the land because I was really suffering from the height. Mm-hmm. Uh, happened, I think, three times that I got sick, which is mainly just nausea. You you throw up a few times and then you're okay. That's but just,
2: you need to rest and if it gets very bad, they always said that it's better to return and to
0: down. Yeah, go to downhill go. a bit, right, and then like yeah. rest there a bit, and then yeah, come. yeah. like, yeah,
2: like, like mountain
0: like climbers, right? They go up, they come back. down, they go up, they come down. Yeah. Of... yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: It's not great when you're on the back, you're like, there's no way I'm going
3: to go down. But you can at least take a break. Mm -hmm. I think another tip would be to bring a a water filter. Because while the water is pretty safe to drink, because most of it just comes from glaciers and rivers, it's always handy to have a water filter with you. I think if you're you're in the remote areas, you can compare it to Norway, which in Norway, I mean... People say that you can drink all the water out of the rivers. You just have to keep an eye on what is up there. And it's pretty similar in Central Asia. As long as you know that it's coming directly from a lake in the mountains where there's nothing, mm-hmm. it's probably fine to drink. But having a water filter with you might save you some hassle in terms of nausea and belly ache and those kind of things.
0: Great. Um, so what are some of your um, fondest memories of Central Asia?
2: i think it's the interaction with locals um it's so different to anything we had actually lived before mm-hmm. and you know when you go when when, when is the first time that you tell a family member or some friends like oh i'm gonna go to Kyrgyzstan," they're like, what? What? kill what
1: yeah. that's dangerous
2: <laughs> so, yeah like don't go there you're gonna my, my when i told my dad he was like oh you want to kill me you're gonna give me a heart attack? <laughs> are you going there and it's like, no, dad, really, we've heard very good things about this country. Um, yeah, like and Things happen in Central Asia, but you know, things happen in Europe too. I was living in London for many years and there were many um, terrorist attacks happening when I was living there. So, I don't know. I, did, I, I never felt concerned at all. So, it was actually very um, nice to see that it was completely the opposite. We've never been so... Well received and taken care of uh, anywhere else than in Central Asia, so I think that all the interactions with locals that we had, all their generosity, inviting us for tea, offering us uh, food, fruits, uh, accommodation, was uh, what we yeah, what we take special from that place.
3: Okay, good. Yeah, we hope it stays also. Because yeah, it's very yeah. unique to experience.
0: Yeah, uh, I wanted to, uh, initially I had a little section here to talk about us. Um, and not that I hate the U.S. or anything, but I think we're going to skip it and uh, people just have to read it in your book because um, I am going to run out of time eventually. And I want to talk about um, the last part of your book, the advice section. Um, you kind of had like it's a beautiful section on basically advice on bike touring for people that are you know interested in getting into it. Um, and and you start off with some misconceptions can you can you tell us what are some of the misconceptions you've heard over i mean several years of bike touring uh, regarding bike touring
3: well Valen was saying it already that a lot of people when it comes to certain countries will say oh
0: that country's so
3: dangerous mm-hmm. and then you hear you know countries like iran i think it's the most stereotypical example yeah in the news iran is a mess and when you talk about talk about around the cyclist everyone is so positive about it yeah, yeah. and that is one of the, the common misconceptions the other one that we heard which was maybe only for us I, I don't know if that's the case with long-term travelers but people were saying oh you must be rich to travel for so long and to travel this way and we're like what we spend a couple of hundred bucks a month on on the things that we and we wild camp and you know we don't have showers for like a couple of days or a week in a row so that was a, a misconception that surprised us quite a lot.
2: Yeah, there, there's many. There is also the one that involve around uh, food or losing weight, like oh, you must lose so much weight, or you that like, you must be so strong, but not really, because you know, cycle touring is not. Speed training. Uh, We do a few kilometers. We stop to eat this. We actually, I think, we spend more time eating than cycling sometimes. So.
0: (laughs) And I have talked to several people that say, like, like bike touring is a great way to travel, so that you can basically eat and drink whatever you want. Yeah!
1: Yeah!
0: Yeah! Exactly. Um. Yeah, my wife is from Iran, by the way. Oh,
3: nice. yeah. Yeah,
0: that's true. That's right. Mm -hmm.
3: yeah i mean we we haven't been able to cycle there but with all the things that we've heard from people it must be an amazing
0: country i've been a few times it's fantastic i'm not european it's so much easier for you guys um it's been always quite a hassle for me to get a visa Uh, but, but what um you did mention earlier that Belen does a lot of the planning for the tours for the rides. how do you go about planning your your routes and um what kind of advice could you give on that
2: It depends a bit on every place, but, um, I usually start finding highlights. Um, when you go to remote places, even like Central Asia, there's just no highlights. So you might as well just check the the satellite map and look out for nice mountains or nice lakes and, um, um, we use a bit of everything. For example, when you're in a, like in, in Europe, there are so many apps that you can use, uh, something like Kubut. But when you are on remote areas, what we use mostly is just Maps.me because they have a very good m- mapping system and you can save points. So by just connecting points, you can already get some kind of a route. But lately, when we want to take more off-route destinations, then I really work with Google Satellites. Because Google Maps in general doesn't know about paths. When you see the satellite, you immediately see all these little roads. So you can actually see if points are connecting. You may not know if it's going to go up or down or how how it's going to be the quality, but you, you can see on the satellite there's a white line in this middle of the mountain. So sometimes we just take the risk and go... And see yeah. what's on those roads. And sometimes, you know, you, you find amazing places and other times they require a lot of sacrifice, like lifting your 50 kilo bike mm-hmm. with all the colored luggage up a sketchy road. But, um, yeah, that's against the adventurous part. As in, if you want to stick to the road, you can always do that easily. If you want to go more off road, then I encourage people to look at the satellite and just find your own path and then tell right. the rest, if it's actually a good way or not to take
3: <laughs> yeah and I, I think in our future workflow uh, for routes, we will also focus on actually recording them because it's something we haven't done and now that the book is out people are asking you know there's a route in the in the book there's these very nice maps but where can i find it digitally so that i can yeah, also yeah the gpx
0: files and, and whatnot yeah
3: right and and so i yeah. think future workflow will combine maps me uh, for these the little trails and then satellite for when all apps just mess up and commutes when we want to record the ride that we're actually doing so that we can mm-hmm. offer people an easy way to find the routes that we uh, enjoy. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it can be tough. Cause like, even with me this summer, like I had, uh, I have a little Garmin 530. It's about the small, one of the smaller garments they make. And
3: um, mm-hmm.
0: if you put it on energy saver, the screen turns off every three seconds. If you turn it on, it turns off after three seconds and yeah, I got about 30 something mm-hmm. hours of recording time. So it's significant, but one more thing draining battery power right so it just drive. adds up well, of drive.
1: course
3: yeah <laughs> it's I, I story how of it life. affect the the phone battery also you uh, recording the route all the time but yeah. i i think it's for the better you know we're in a position where we can actually do it and i think we should feel responsible to to share
0: those things yeah what's uh what's your guys method of cooking on tour Are you guys uh the type that prepare big meals or is it like the the quick and easy well
2: i must confess I must conse- confess that when we we're touring, I never touch the kitchen. Yeah.
0: Uh, so yeah.
2: <laughs> Tristan, Tristan is the cook here when we're touring. Mm. I just have some kind of an allergy to the stove. I don't know why. I think it's just the gas. It's
0: the gas. It's the gas yeah, and yeah, the gas and stove.
3: Uh, you, know, you know the fun <laughs> thing. The fun thing is actually that we spoke to other couples, and usually the yeah. girl would focus on the tent and like getting everything ready in the tent, and the guy would cook. Yeah. And I don't know if that has to do with cold resistance or something like that, but. I've I've always enjoyed cooking quite a lot on trips because you have to get really creative if you want to eat decent food on the way. And it's surprisingly easy. Uh, We have mostly focused on uh, uh, meals in the evening. The mornings are easy, just bread and coffee or something like that. But the meals in the evening are always these one-pan meals, which there are a few in the book that we've really enjoyed. And if you... It just you know these few ingredients that can make it a really special uh, meal mostly spices and other things that you can easily carry along with you like dried fruits or or um, uh, things like spices like mm-hmm. I mentioned can make the meal very special so we cook in one pan signature dishes include uh, garlic fried rice which the garlic just makes it amazing it's a thing from Spain I learned from Berlin and then <laughs> You know things like sauces with lots of veggies in there. Yeah. Um, mixing the the pasta with a bit of, uh, bit of stock cube when you're boiling it, so that you can then pull a soup from it in your cup, which we did in northern Spain a lot. Oh, so that's a great the, idea. You, yeah. Oh, it's it, lovely. It yeah. tastes. You know, I I don't eat chicken, but it tastes it tastes like a chicken broth when you put a little stock cube. Uh, like
0: a, just a veggie one, a bit yeah. of
3: salt. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna quickly.
0: Uh, I'm gonna quickly read just the names of the different meals you have in your book, so that um, people want they <laughs> yes. they got to go buy your book. But Central yeah, Asian yeah. winter was buckwheat, um, and you got you know all your different ingredients, and you even tell the That's method of cooking names. it, right? I'm... Spanish rice that looks delicious. Um, yes. Look so, And it doesn't look hard. It's all just mixed together, right? Le, uh, lentil yellow yeah. curry. I'm a big curry fan. Um, pasta Delicious. la verdure. Mm, yeah, veggie, and then veggie actually, wraps, yeah.
3: It's kind of a thing on caponata, which is an Italian dish for those listening from Italy. I love caponata. And it's trying an version. one version. It's very tricky. It takes a long time. It costs a lot of gas, but you can do it in a, <laughs> in a cycling fashion. Okay. So we put the simplified version.
0: Yeah, I was cooking in summers using like the smallest gas can I could find and like everything was like instant rice and it's just not.
3: right. And it's it's not difficult to make a little bit better food, you know, yeah. it just takes maybe 10
0: minutes more. I usually carry chili, so, chili so flakes beautiful. and uh, chili flakes and salt and oil, three yeah. things I carry with yeah. me. Yeah. 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 And, and I think the wraps that you mentioned, the, the mm-hmm. last one that's in
3: the book, that one came along in the US because there's a lot yeah. of Mexican inspired food. And we enjoyed the wraps a lot because it's so easy. You just get a can of corn, a can of beans, maybe some tomato sauce, maybe some spices and some salad that you buy ready mm-hmm. and some wraps. And then you just put it all together. Yeah. yeah. You need the pan. You could even eat it cold.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we, we touched on this earlier and then you brought it up again at the end of your, your book, but uh, being more like environmentally aware when, uh, when touring, mm-hmm. um, what are some of the ways that you guys encourage people to to be more invent- environmentally aware? Well, I think cycling in general teaches you to be
3: more to well, to become more environmentally aware because you see things up close. In Kyrgyzstan, we noticed that we were collecting our trash in a little baggie like we do everywhere, and then you dispose of it when you find a trash can. The only thing was that we didn't find a trash can. So there was no trash collection system and you can't dispose of your trash unless they just, you put do it they in the yeah, yeah, they, they do. burn it. And that felt really weird to be out there and experience that. But you take it as a lesson and you learn about it. And then you can apply that back home when you think about your recycling and all that. Uh, yeah, we, we do fly for our journeys. Uh, we see it as work. So we have a kind of excuse. I'm still very annoyed with the fact that that still has to be done because trains in Europe however good they are for when you're without a bike, when you add a bike to it, it just becomes very difficult to take it along. But definitely the transport to and from your journey, you can work with that very, very much and encourage bus companies and train companies to make it easier. Uh, And then also, I think during your journeys, uh, in my case, I have a vegan diet. I think it contributes, Um, but there's many other ways that you could uh, minimize on your luggage buy secondhand things uh, like your bike or your luggage or things that you use. Um, yeah, the, those I would say are the, the primary ways to become a bit more aware of your footprint on a journey, and try and minimize it. I think the best thing is to buy everything secondhand and go on a journey in your own country firsthand. So you don't have to transport yourself at all. Just experience it like that. And then yeah, like starting it,
0: from home is a the great way to take away that carbon footprint. Yeah, Totally. You yeah, guys are fortunate we, though. You live in Europe, so starting from home, you can still see lots of cultures and <laughs> countries all at one time. Yeah. And like us, where it's a little yeah. bit.
3: <laughs> yeah, some places it's true. You just have to you just have to fly a distance, or you know, take a long distance bus or something. So it becomes more difficult depending on where you live. But there's always sensible ways, and I won't brag on about it. But you can find online. You can find plenty of articles that will tell you how to how to travel more environmentally friendly. And we didn't want to make it a big subject in the book because it's already talked about so much. But we did integrate a few, you know, if you read the whole thing, you'll learn quite a lot about our approach.
0: Yeah, and um, the last thing is uh, you had a, you have a section. I mean, I've spoken to a few women on the podcasts um, regarding gender and cycling, and I guess this is more towards Belen than you, Tristan. Um, but <laughs> And I see there's a section in your book, so I, I thought we should give it some uh, due attention. Um, a lot of women are apprehensive about bike touring, especially solo. Um, what are is there any advice or you know words of encouragement you can give out there, Belen?
2: Well, I must say that I cannot speak for for myself as a solo tourer because I have honestly never cycled alone before. I have traveled before, but never to any place that you might be concerned of. So I can only speak from the point of traveling as a couple. Um, I must say that it's it's it must be very different, of course. Already by having Tristan next to me, I know that I must have missed so many, like so many, maybe going wrong situations. Um, I've had it. You, you you had it mostly when you go to Central Asia. Like the first question we would get asked maybe is where we from. The second question would be if we're married. Yeah. And it would be always an, a guy asking Tristan if we're married, as in, can I actually take her, or are you with her, basically. <laughs> So yeah, oh, we always always says like yeah, yes, we are married. We would do like the gesture of the like a ring around our finger, even though we were not carrying anything. Um, but I, I personally, I think it depends on how everyone feels. I am a very probably happy and naive human being where I see good everywhere. So I never try to think that someone is gonna do something to me or harass me or, um, so I guess that that helps. Um, on feeling confident on going anywhere I guess in the world but I know that it is a situation that is um, yeah that it is there and uh, I know many solo female cyclists who they just have their their thoughts in their minds and they know what would they do if they get into a sketchy situation Um, for example um, a friend of ours she inspires us a lot she's my She's, she's Anne from Sweden and she was telling us that her great method was to just act crazy. So if there was someone, usually guys on mopeds, trying to uh, go next to her, uh, asking her things, then she would just start screaming and doing weird things. And it would work great for her. She said that she never had a problem after that for her whole trip. So I would think any women can cycle by themselves, practically all around the world. You just have to be extra where I guess develop this extra fifth, sixth, seventh mm-hmm. sense where you, yeah, where you are always, you know, keep in mind that something could happen because after all, we are vulnerable in some way,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but it shouldn't be something that stops you from traveling and discovering going the, ro- the world because... Usually this is, if something happens, is like once or twice or three times, but it's nothing compared to all the amazing experience that you get from traveling and all the generosity that you get from, from just strangers.
3: Mm-hmm. Can I add something? Yeah. I think uh, <laughs> if, if anyone is inspired by what Belen is saying, any woman out there inspired to cycle, is that I think it's very important you share your experience because it's a big, big yeah. underrepresented segment of of uh, bike travelers, yeah. And as yeah. a woman traveling alone on a bike, you have a big say in in the world of social media and podcasts and other places. So get the word out there of your experience, so that you encourage other women to cycle too. A
0: very good point, Tristan. I've had a few women reach out and say, "Hey, you need to get more women on the show and stuff." And I'm like, "Man, I'm trying. Like, <laughs> I really am." Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah
3: yeah so so contact chris ladies. there you go <laughs> um
0: so before we sign off where can people find out more about you guys and about your book
3: so the book is on amazon worldwide uh i think if you're in benelux you can get it through lanu our publisher but amazon is generally the place to go uh, otherwise we do sell signed copies from time to time on our website which is under my name TristanBogard.com. And you can also find our YouTube and Instagram channels under those same names. So Tristan Bogart and Belen goes under Belle Toscan, B-E-L-L-E-T-O-S-C-A-N.
0: <laughs> and that's just. I know I should general. change it. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I got. I've got to say, you know, in just as a few little points here, um, I've only got the PDF version of the book. I love it. Uh, it was really, really great to go through it. Um, It's definitely something I'm going to pick up at some point because I think the the advantage of this coffee table book as opposed to a novel is that it's so accessible to everybody who's, you know, somebody that's not into biking and doesn't know anything about it might not buy or read a novel about a bike tour mm-hmm. but the coffee table book if you have it at your house and you're a passionate cyclist and you have friends come over and they start flipping and they go holy shit like this is so nice look yeah. at this place look at this story and then and that's that's how you build the interest so i think it was a great idea um it is really really good um on top of that furthermore Bellin, the i mean the videos on your two websites are, are very different hers was like one whole thing specific yours where you had very um, like hers was maybe about a country, and then you, yours, uh, yeah, Tristan, were I do series. different series. And uh, but all in all, fantastic, really great cinematography, good pictures. Yep. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. So people, please check out their social media. Um, really good photos and videos. So thanks, Chris. Yeah, I appreciate that. And what's next for you guys before we sign off? Well, well
2: Tristan is actually leaving in about and days to cycle yeah, I mean. italy by himself huh. he's going to be cycling alone since he haven't done that I'm since what solo. 2016
3: yeah. so within a little little spoiler <laughs> uh-huh. just you know for the sake of it we are working on a different book uh, it is going to involve a lot of other cyclists uh, it's coming out later there's there's more news about it coming on our, our social media as we go forward but it's something that uh, Belen is working on now in Spain, and it's why she's not joining me. Ah, oh, cool! I nice. think you're you're gonna love it a lot.
0: Okay, it, uh... looking forward to. It. Maybe we'll have to have another talk.
3: <laughs> yeah, maybe we do. It's quite a special project. So yeah, that's that's uh, pretty much what's next. next. Just keep on cycling, keep on inspiring people to to ride bicycles and travel with them. And you guys as well. Mm-hmm.
0: That's awesome. All right. Well, I've got to sign off because um, I got to go to work. This is the downside. <laughs> all right, guys. It's been a real, real Thanks pleasure. So um, wishing you guys all the best. Safe trip in Italy, Tristan. And Bella, and good luck with your your book writing. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Talk soon. Later. Hey everyone. Before we end this podcast, I'd like to tell you about some of Bike Tour Adventures' other amazing partners. Very proud to be supported by Brockton Cyclery, a Toronto based bike shop dedicated to bike touring and bike packing. Carrying many of the top bike touring and bike packing brands, I can honestly say that they have helped me to build the most durable and fast bike packing bike possible. We're also supported by Race Day Fuel. Their mission is to ensure that you consume the very best and appropriate food and beverage for the task at hand. Working with top brands such as Scratch, Noon, and Untapped. They have all your nutrition needs taken care of. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures website. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on peddling.